you have your sermon outline, um, we're going to continue in our series about misused and misunderstood passages of Scripture. One of the elder session duties that I really enjoy, I'm sure you think I enjoy all of them, and I'll, let's just pretend I do, but the one I really enjoy the most is meeting with new families, new people, um, like the Essexes, and hearing their stories and their testimonies, what, how they came to Christ, and even hearing what brought them to this church, to a PCA church. A few weeks ago, we met with a few uh, new members, and each one of them, there were three of them, each one of them said something to the effect of, man, I never wanted to be a Presbyterian. <laughs> I mean, I, where I grew up, I knew some Presbyterians, and I just knew I didn't want to do that. Um, one of them even begged their mom, I, I don't want to be a Presbyterian, but I like this church. And, <laughs> but here they are. They've all joined. And it just reminds me that we come from all different backgrounds. Um, maybe you did grow up Presbyterian uh, or even in the PCA, and so you're loyal to uh, sort of the Reformed faith. And so it was very natural for you to come here. I think that's a lot of people here. Maybe, uh, as an, another new member said, Josh White's just bugged us for years to come. And so we finally did, and now it feels like home. Or maybe this is just the closest church that you can walk to. Somebody else told us that. I think the majority of the people that I've heard uh, have just come, been drawn by people and relationships. Um, they come because of some combination of the, of the preaching and, and music and um, that they wanted to be part of a community and a, maybe a church of our size with youth ministry, the different things we offer. Whatever brought you here, we are glad that you're here. Now, I grew up Presbyterian, but not in the PCA, per se. Not really until college did I attend a PCA church. Um, and by the time I was an adult, I was on my own, I had really felt that the PCA was, was going to be where I would spend uh, my life, where I'd raise my children, our family would be. It was an ideal fit, just the blend of Reformed theology, strong teaching, uh, with many pastors and authors that I admired, um, and combined with wonderful missions and outreach groups. Um, I, did, I worked for an a Evangelical Covenant Church, not a PCA church, right before I moved here. And when I moved up, uh, it just felt like coming home, being part of this church and back in the PCA. And I had a very idealistic vision of how the PCA came about. You know, it was formed, it was actually started the same year I was born, 1973, to combat the theological liberalism and the denial of the Bible and the Orthodox Christianity at the mainline Presbyterian Church, the PCUS that I had grown up in, that they had rejected. And, and that's really true. But in recent years, you may know that the PCA has had to do some hard reflecting on its historical roots. A pastor and scholar, church history professor, uh, Sean Michael Lucas, 
wrote a detailed history of the founding of the PCA. It was called For a Continuing Church. And that included some very difficult truth that some of the founders of our denomination were segregationists who were committed to advancing white purity and supremacy and literally denying minorities a seat in the pews. Some of the people who fought for this biblically faithful denomination mixed in segregation with other priorities of conservative churches. And and they really lumped multiculturalism and racial progress in with with the liberals. So, for instance, J.E. Flo, a pastor who wrote for the Southern Presbyterian Journal, which was really instrumental in starting the PCA, wrote an article that put forth a vision of what a faithful Southern Presbyterian church would look like. This was what was the roots of the PCA. So it had five distinctives. Faithful interpretation of the scripture with the Westminster Standards. Great. Presbyterian form of church government, obviously. Grassroots principle of church oversight. Still solid. The spiritual, non-political mission of the church. And the purity and integrity of the white man of North America upon whose shoulders are laid the burden of the world. Four of those are really good godly goals. And one of them is just white supremacist cultural snobbery. Other pastors, such as William Childs Robinson, said, God, who has appointed the bounds of several habitations, has given the church no commission to wipe out the color line. G.T. Gillespie, any policy or practice that involved the gradual integration and ultimate amalgamation of the white and colored races in the United States would represent a colossal blunder a betrayal of unborn generations, and a monstrous crime against civilization. That was hard for many of us who have grown up in the PCA to to find out about. I I didn't know that. I I had sort of heard... Oh yeah, the, you know, the PCA was started as a racist, and I was like, no, it was started to be true to Scripture. And so when I read those, it was upsetting. And our General Assembly has wrestled with that the last couple of years and repented and confessed, because you have to own the good and the bad of your history. Well, where did these men develop such ideas. Surely this was just southern prejudice. There's no support in the Bible, is there? Well, they found it. They found verses to support their case, a lot of them. And so as a part of our ongoing series on the most misused and misunderstood verses in the Bible, let's take a look at a few of them. This is going to be a little different because we've been sort of uh, looking at one text each time. But we have a, a number of Uh, text that we're going to look at this morning. We're we're not going to do justice to each one of them, but the theme that runs through them. So Genesis 28.1 is the first one. If you don't have an outline, maybe I'll give you a minute to flip. Genesis 28. 
Isaac called Jacob and blessed him and directed him. You must not take a wife from the Canaanite women. All right, Deuteronomy 7, a couple couple books over. Verses 2 and 3. And when the Lord your God gives them over to you, and you defeat them, then you must devote them to complete destruction. You shall make no covenant with them. This is the surrounding uh, cultures we'll talk about. And show no mercy to them. You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons. And then two, two verses from the book of Ezra, chapter 9. Verse 2 says, For they have taken some of their daughters to be wives for themselves and for their sons, so that the holy race has mixed itself with the peoples of the lands. And in this faithlessness, the hand of the officials and chief men has been foremost. And then verse 12, Therefore do not give your daughters to their sons, neither take their daughters for your sons, and never seek their peace or prosperity, that you may be strong and eat the good of the land, and leave it for an inheritance to your children forever. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Let's pray. Almighty, eternal, and merciful God, your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Open and illuminate our minds that we may purely and perfectly understand your word and that our lives may be conformed to what we have rightly understood through Jesus Christ. Amen. The verses we've read from Genesis, Deuteronomy, Ezra summarize God's prohibition of his people marrying people from other nations. From early on, as illustrated in Genesis 28, uh, the men of Israel were not to marry women from pagan tribes. As the nation grew, and particularly as they came into the promised land, and they were surrounded by Philistines, Canaanites, Hittites, all those groups um, that had their own gods and worshipped idols, God forbade the Israelites from intermarrying and from making covenants with them. And so the Deuteronomy 7 passage makes plain that God had sent them to bring his judgment on those tribes, and they were to destroy them. And they were not to spare them and make covenant with them, much less intermarry with them and allow the idolatry and foreign gods to get a foothold in their tribes and their families. In the age of the kings, what what led Solomon's heart away from the Lord? Solomon, who God was pleased with to give wisdom. Well, it was his many wives and their foreign idols. Even after the people returned from exile to Jerusalem, which is the time frame and the context of the two verses from Ezra, God is still telling them not to mix their children with the people from the other tribes and nations. Was it the color of their skin or their 
cultural differences that kept God from allowing them to intermarry? No. It was their faith. These verses specifically are geared toward a spiritual purity. God's chosen people needed to marry within that group of chosen people or else they would be led away to worshiping false gods. It was not the fact that God wanted to protect the Jewish or Hebrew uh, identity to preserve this distinct culture just for the sake of having a pure culture. God was working through one group, his chosen people, and trying to keep them from polluting themselves with idolatry. And people of other religions, of other nations, would inevitably drag his people away from being faithful to them. Now, we have to obviously acknowledge that foreigners were allowed to be part of Israel. They were allowed to be brought in if they submitted themselves, committed to God's covenant, God's laws, to circumcision for the men. Uh, What else is the book of Ruth, if not all about a, a foreigner marrying into the people of God, and from her offspring, both David and Jesus are born? So the point we need to keep coming back to is we are not called to be separate from other ethnicities. We are called to be distinct and separate from other faiths. Now, the parallel in our lives to the New Testament believers is that we are part of the church. 1 Peter 2.9 calls us a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. That is our identity. After Jesus came, Israel was not the chosen people anymore. The church is. And we are not to be drawn away from Jesus by marrying people of other faiths or no faith at all. 2 Corinthians 6.14 is probably our best parallel passage. It states it the most succinctly. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? Now, I've heard people apply this to business partnerships, maybe some other areas. Um, We don't have time to tease all that out, but it certainly applies to dating and marriage relationships. The Lord is honored as we seek out others who love him. Right? We have that picture of yoking. So if you picture two oxen side by side, bound together at the neck, they only make progress if they head in the same direction, right? What would it look like if they were yoked and one was backwards? They would just spin in a circle, right? They would make no progress or or the idea of unequally one very large, one small and just dragging and you're not going to make progress unless you're equally yoked. That is the picture of what dating or marrying someone who does not share your faith commitment looks like. Now, 
the question is then sometimes asked as we talk about that. Well, okay, what if a Christian is married to a non-Christian? Should they divorce them so they're not unequally yoked? And 1 Corinthians 7 answers that pretty directly because that was a real question in the early church. When converts were, were coming to faith in Christ, what do I do with my spouse who's not coming with me? Paul says, to the rest I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. So back to my main point, that there is no suggestion in the New Testament that race, ethnicity, should be a consideration for Christians in marriage. To suggest that the Bible presents principles of separation and segregation is false and a misrepresentation of Scripture. And that's not only for whites and uh, the majority culture, although this sermon is focused on that particularly, on the ways that we've mishandled scriptures to support the ways that we've kept sort of white purity and white privilege intact. But all cultures, even though if they're, they're minorities here, perhaps majorities in other countries, all cultures need to think through their own brand of prejudice as well. There is an ethnic supremacy in many cultures, and there's a stigma and a shaming for those who marry outside of their people. Our Sunday school class, the missions around the world, where we look at a different country every week. We heard from Nathaniel Mullins this morning about Japan. And that is a mostly closed-off country that does not consider, I mean, he specifically talked about Africans that moved to Japan who were mistreated, looked down on. They would not allow to be intermarried. Now, it might be easier, people will make the, the uh, argument that it's easier to marry someone of the same ethnicity. And certainly those cultural factors are real things that need to be considered and potentially overcome, but you cannot say that those factors are biblical mandates to marry within your own culture. The only biblical requirement is that you are equally yoked with another believer. Okay, so those verses about the Israelites not mixing with other nations should be understood in a spiritual sense. How do we positively then set forth the Bible's teachings and God's desire for his people to ignore our cultural and racial differences to love one another. I want to focus on three areas. That we are one people from Adam. That we are one in Christ and that we will be one in heaven. One people. So let's start with the first one, our common ancestry from, from Adam. We really are one race. The human race. As we 
theologically talk about the, the fall and the fact that we all are spiritually uh, infected by sin because we all descend from Adam. All right, God did not start cultures at the beginning. He started with one man and grew the human race from there. So we're all related, even as we've spread out all over the globe and found very different ways to speak and and live and believe. We're all cousins, in a sense, no matter how far removed. Now, yes, we have the uh, account of the Tower of Babel. Uh, in between the time of Noah and Abraham, you remember Genesis chapter 11, men at the time spoke one language and they came together to build a tower to the heavens, to reach God, to make a name for themselves. Uh, Verses five through eight records that the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, behold, they are one people and they have all one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So that the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth. And they left off building the city. Paul teaches in Acts chapter 17, and he, God, made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each of us. Those are actually both passages I could have included sort of at the beginning. They're both passages that these white segregationists used to support their view that God has separated people into different groups. And here's the part that they emphasize, that we would be going against God by violating those boundaries and separations. Well, that's what theologians call eisegesis. Don't be thrown by the term. It just means reading into the text what you want it to say. Because there's nothing in Scripture that says God has put people into different cultural groups and woe to the one who crosses those boundaries and mixes the cultures. That's just not in there. And it's also bad exegesis, which is attempting to let the, the text teach you to, to understand what the scriptures mean. God here was dispersing the people throughout the earth as a result of the Tower of Babel incident, but also because they had not fulfilled the original commands to be fruitful, multiply, and fill the whole earth. And so he used that opportunity but we press the meaning of Scripture and we twist it to say that, see, God set them apart and now we need to preserve all of the cultural differences and we need to keep the white man pure and all of the twisted arguments that come from it. Because we are all descended from Adam 
We are all one race. And even more compelling for Christians is the idea that those who are new creations in Christ have no separation between us. Because our unity is in Christ. You remember the great dividing wall in the early church was between Jews and Gentiles, right? So much uh, massive conflict and, and mistrust. And the Jews had generally considered the Gentiles pagans, utterly beneath them, not worthy of being part of the same faith. So as Peter and Paul go out and say, well, God's including the Gentiles in this new thing, the the way, the Christian faith. Well, the early church, the Jews didn't know how to handle that. And they said, well, we got to make them Jews, right? And Paul says, no, no. And so Paul goes and says things like Ephesians 3, 6. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. And Galatians 3.28, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. How we treat one another in the body of Christ should transcend all of our differences. Not that we don't notice that I'm a man and uh, my wife is a woman. Uh, Not that we blur that, that uh, we don't pretend that there are no differences in our cultures, our socioeconomic status, but Paul urges us not to let those things divide us. His emphasis always is on loving one another and considering others better than yourself. We are different, but we are one because of the engrafting into Christ. We who are separate from the branches of of the covenant have been engrafted, made one with the rest of the body of Christ. And finally, our ultimate future will be as multicultural and multi-ethnic as you can get. All people all kinds of people will be joined in heaven. Revelation 7, 9, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. If your vision of heaven is a bunch of people that look like you, you are going to be really shocked when you get there. The people who don't look like you get the same salvation that you do. You will spend eternity with this new family. All tribes, all people, all languages. And there will be no barriers between us. Imagine. We could spend plenty of sermons talking about that, but I hope you've spent some time considering what being in heaven with no sin 
no corruption, no barriers between us will look like. No mistrust, no one looking down on the other. There will be pure love between us and God and between all of his redeemed people. If that's our future, why not work towards that now? What would God have me to do? I want to suggest a few things. I know the Holy Spirit works on everyone's heart differently, so maybe he's going to bring some different things to your mind as you reflect on this. Let me just suggest the first thing we should do is repent. Repent because we're all racist and prejudiced to some extent in our sinful natures. So ask God to forgive you, your past attitudes to work healing in your heart, understanding and love for those who are not like you. This may involve confessing or asking forgiveness of someone that you judged or spoke harshly to. I don't think we can make much progress until we've repented and confessed of the past. Number two, commit to represent the scriptures accurately. Kind of got that whole sermon series. We're drilling that into you. But particularly here, look for ways that your cultural blinders make you interpret the Bible so that it agrees with you. And so that it fits in with the sins of our culture. Number three, I would encourage you to commit to getting to know someone of another culture, another ethnicity in a much deeper way. Support those who have married someone from a different culture. Uh, Support those who have adopted cross-culturally. Number four, we, we all could do some hard thinking about your thinking through your own preferences and cultural expectations to try to uncover why you treat people like you do or uncover the prejudice that keeps you from embracing someone as your full brother or sister in Christ. But mostly, let's rest in the words of Ephesians 2, 13 and 14. For now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Jesus died for you. He died to redeem his people, the church, in all its colors and splendor. Jesus' death is about reconciliation about bringing us near to God and bringing us in unity with one another and the church cannot cling to division the church cannot teach that but embrace what Christ's redemption brings in all of its fullness in all of its people. 
and all those who rejoice and celebrate our new life in this beautifully colored body said, Amen. Let me give you some time to pray silently, and then I'll close us in prayer. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels are standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen.